Uh, good morning. Before uh, we dive into the text today, I'm actually going to invite uh, Chrissy up. She has uh, she has stories she wants to share with you guys. So, you know. Good morning, everyone. I hope I can get through this. I'm a little nervous, so hopefully, um, hopefully I'm not a big crybaby. I wrote everything down, so hopefully it will help me a little bit. But I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas, just as I did. I hope we uh, really celebrated the reason for the season. Um, I wanted to take a few moments and thank you for all the love and the prayers and the support that you all have shown me in the past couple of weeks. Um, all the letters and the words of encouragement have meant a lot to me and reminded me that I'm not going through any of this alone. Um, for those of you who have been wondering or that do not know me, I wanted to share with you exactly what I've been up to. Um, on November 14th, on my 40th birthday, I took a leave of absence from work and from my current life. You see, on that night, I was in a horrible accident, and it's a miracle that I'm standing here talking to you today. I only made it about a mile from where I, where I left, my vehicle struck something in the front and continued off the road, striking a tree, spinning, almost flipping, and striking two more trees before coming to a stop. Every window was shattered, including the windshield, which I had broken with the top of my head. I was not wearing a seatbelt. I woke up at the hospital the next morning, not knowing what happened, and not a single broken bone, just a concussion and a bunch of bruises. I was given a second chance to live. So with that said, I just wanted to introduce myself to the ones who do not know me. My name is Chrissy. I am the daughter of the late Jeff and Kelly Bible, Bybee. I'm a sister to Tara, Mandy, and Jeffrey. I'm an aunt to many. I'm a wife to a wonderful, wonderful, supportive husband, Dale, and mother to three beautiful daughters, Sierra, Sienna, and Emery. I'm a restaurant manager, I'm a bartender, and I'm also the church secretary. I'm a caring, loving, and compassionate person. I'm a hard worker with determination and drive. I'm also a recovering alcoholic. On my 40th birthday, I hit my rock bottom. I can only tell you of the accident from what I heard. All I remember is, ma'am, don't move. You've been in a bad accident. What I do know is that I was drinking and driving. My blood alcohol level was 0.41, and my body shut down while I was driving. Alcohol poisoning should have killed me first and I should have died in that car that night. My husband and family had a wonderful day planned for my birthday, which basically turned into a going away party. I spent that day surrounded by my family at my home. I had many talks with my husband, my family, with Pastor Joe, with Paula, and with myself. And on that night, I admitted myself into an addiction recovery facility for 30 days of treatment. I finally realized I was powerless and my life was becoming unmanageable. I realized I was a very high-functioning alcoholic, and I desperately needed help. It was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. Before that decision, I was stuck telling myself not to go. I could never admit that I need help, because I'm the one that always helps everyone. I have my life under control. I have two jobs, and I take care of my family pretty darn well. I can control my drinking, and I can control my life. What would everyone think? Oh my gosh, I'm going to be so embarrassed when everyone finds out. 
and I'm going to lose my job. I'm such an idiot, and I was terrified and afraid. The last couple of years, I have been self-medicating myself with alcohol to ease my stress and anxiety. I have used that substance to replace my depression and my sadness that I have been hiding, and I have slowly let it replace all my happiness and joy, and I was unable to claw out of the darkness that it had taken me to. I have been hitting rock bottom for quite a while. I have been living in denial that I am powerless. I have told myself that I have all the willpower to overcome anything. I have hid many things. I lied to my family. I've hurt myself. I've almost killed myself, and I hurt the ones closest to me in the process. The whole time I was in a fog, and I could not see, or I did not want to see, and I just didn't want to face the truth, because the truth of addiction hurts. The truth is I've been living with the problems and monsters almost my whole life. Growing up was very rough for me. I smoked my first cigarette at the age of 11, and I had my first drink at the age of 12. I lost many family members to addiction, including my dad, and I still have trouble grieving over the loss of my mom to cancer. I, for a long time, felt that my last relationship ending with my two oldest daughters' dad was all my fault, and I had failed them. I still feel at some times that my husband and children deserve a better life than what I can give them. I still feel that I am not enough. I was letting all those hidden emotions from the past, present, and anxiety of the future define me, and I was trying to cover them up. I was afraid not to be okay. There were many years, though, I was on fire for God, and those years were some of the best years of my life, and I've so missed them. I began a relationship with him and desire to learn all I can about God, his Son, and the Holy Spirit. Somewhere I took a wrong path, and I stepped out of the relationship that I had with Jesus, and I stepped into the darkness of sin, and I let the devil enter my life. I was letting the monster steal my joy. Over the past month or so, I have taken a deep look at myself, and I have broken up with sin. I looked for, and I found the support of professionals, and I got the medical help I needed. I have looked at my relationship with Jesus, and I have repented of my sins. I have asked God to forgive me, and I have forgiven myself. You see, reading and listening to God's word has reminded me that I cannot do this alone. I am not in control, and I am not the one who has all the power, and I need the guidance of God and God's people. Only perfect, perfect trust in God can keep me calm. My faith will be my bridge between me and God. Everything that I need in life to be fulfilled will be, will be the result of God's spirit in me. God saved me. He has a purpose for my life. God will protect me from temptations and defeat if I am armed with his power. I am here to fulfill his purpose and live a life pleasing to God. Just as Pastor Joe spoke to us last week, I have been reminded that Jesus has come for us. He's came for you and for me, just as I am, regardless of my past. He came to save me from sin, from death, and from hell. No matter what baggage I have, he came for me. Jesus has come and taken my sins and my shame. My garbage was nailed to the cross and is gone and has given me salvation, and he is my hope and joy. So before I end, let me introduce who I really am. My name is Chrissy. I am a human being, and I am a child of God. Uh, before you go... Before you go... Uh, before Chrissy comes down, I'd like to invite the deacons and, el and elders that are here up. Uh, so ja the book of James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other and you will be healed. So.
um, confessing your sins before people is one of the most vulnerable, painful things you have to do. And in that moment, we want to surround you as a church. Uh, so I'm going to have Elder Rick pray for you. Confession is a hard thing to do, but uh, it's a healing thing. We are thankful that we worship a God who is a God of forgiveness and restoration. I read the words of Isaiah in 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance and murder of God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor. Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you are a God of restoration, that you bring beauty from ashes. Father, we thank you that you forgive us. Lord, that you're the God who sets our sins as far as east is from west. And though we are stained like crimson, you washed us white as snow. You remember our sins no more. Father, we thank you for Chrissy. We lift her up in, in your strength and in your arms, Lord, and uh, Lord, it enables us as a, as a church to love her as you do and to embrace her with your forgiveness. Forgive us all, Father, for we've all sinned. Come short of the glory of God. Lord, we pray to your glory and your honor that your name would be magnified and glorified this day, that all would know the loving, forgiving God that you are, and that you would glorify yourself in the life of Chrissy and her family. Lord, bless them, heal her, and uh, be with them and bind them together in Christ's name. Amen. By the way, I know um, this has been a hard season for a lot of people, right? And I know just talking with people who are directly involved in addiction services, AA and other things, it's a hard time. And this is a season where, unfortunately, many people are falling back on the relapse. Um, but I want to offer you guys hope. We're here together as a church moving towards God together, right? Uh, and the Spirit is helping us in that process. So if you are struggling emotionally or spiritually or with addiction, the worst thing you can do is keep that to yourself. Um, so as painful it is, as it is, I invite you to have the courage and to, to as James calls us to do, confess to one another. Um, and in that moment, what you'll do is you'll be surprised by the grace of God expressed through his people. And in that act can be a powerful step to healing. Just want to say that before we dive in today. Uh, so for last Sunday and on Christmas Eve, Joe has has taken a break from the book of Revelation. 
uh, and he has been instead focusing in on the incarnation story, the story of how the Son of God became a human being who lived a perfect life for us, who died in our place and was resurrected for our salvation. Uh, that moment of becoming a human being, we call it the incarnation, but we've been focusing on that, and we've talked about how Jesus is the hope for our past, no matter what you've done or who you were, in Jesus you can be made a new person. And we talked about on Christmas Eve how Jesus is also the hope for our present. No matter your current circumstances or how bleak or dire or painful they may be, in Jesus we have hope. And the interesting thing is, as we move back into the book of Revelation, what we discover is that actually flows really well with where we're at. So uh, um, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19 in the second half today. Um, but what I want to explore with you is how Jesus is the hope for our future. Uh, before that, though, just to reorient us since we've taken a break from this book, uh, I want to zoom in and say, okay, where are we in this book? What's happening around this text? So for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how God is bringing justice on the evil of the world. And he's focused in on chapter 17, this, this image, this figure that was called Babylon, this, this prostitute that, uh, uh, that represented the apostate church. Those who said they followed Jesus but were actually evil, and it said it describes her as drunk on the blood of the saints. In other words, this fake church who actually persecutes and kills and murders the true followers of Jesus. And right after this, next week, Joe's going to pick us up on what is called Armageddon. And Armageddon, you guys have probably heard of, even if you're not too familiar with the Bible, because it's this popular, this idea, this image in movies and stories of this climactic battle against all the forces of good against all the forces of evil. And it's really popular and fun to depict in movie. Um, and I won't go too in detail, because like I said, Pastor Joe will preach on it next week, but a small spoiler doesn't go well for the, for the bad guys, right? In fact, calling it a battle is probably an exaggeration. Jesus shows up, and uh, he doesn't need an army. By himself, he just wipes the field of battle with no resistance, right? Why? Well, because, guess what? The battle is won already. When Jesus came and died, he said right beforehand, it is finished. And that meant that there's nothing left. There's no battle left. He hasn't returned to make things right because he is waiting so that all might. Who, who will enter God's new family, will enter it. But guess what? The battle is decided. It's not a choice between the heavy favorites and the great underdogs. No, it's a choice between the team that's already won and the team that's already lost, right? But in between that is where we find ourselves today, and it's this what is traditionally called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what we see in this is in between justice being dished out against Babylon and the apostate church being destroyed, and then the final victory cleaning up all of evil so that no evil remains anymore forever and eternity, we have a celebration. We have a party, a wedding specifically. And in this moment, all those who have followed Jesus for all of eternity 
um, from the beginning of time to the end of time, will come together and celebrate that finally all that we hope for is here. But that does beg a question, because we've been talking about this apostate church, this, this fake church, people who say they follow Jesus, or the, they say they are the true church, but they're not. How do you know which one you're in? How do you know that we, as confessing followers of Jesus, are actually part of the true bride of Christ, and we're not actually a part of the fake church? So that's what I want to explore today. Um, so what I'm going to ask for you guys to do is stand up. I'm going to read the text out loud and I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into the text together. So we are in chapter 19 of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be talking about verse 6 all the way through verse 10, but I want to back up a little bit and read verse 5 as well. So, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you who serve his servants. And you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the gospel of Jesus that provides healing and forgiveness for all our sins. I pray that you would take this word today, that you would let it sink into our hearts, and that your spirit would use it to transform us, to be more and more made in the image of God after the likeness of Jesus, and that we would find ourselves dressed and prepared and ready for this marriage supper. You stand and pray. Amen. You can see. You can be seated. So what is going on in this text? If we back up to verse 5, what we see is this announcement and the celebration that Babylon has fallen, and then we get this interesting little scene. So you're you're in heaven, you're around the throne of God, and who sits on the throne of God? Well, only God, right? But then you get this interesting little verse here that says, and a voice came from that throne, and this is what that voice said. So from the throne, so the only person that can be speaking is God, right? And yet, this is what the voice says. Praise our God all you his servants. Isn't that interesting wording? Praise our God. Why would God use those wordings? Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you realize that the person saying this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Now, Trinity is this big term we use in Christianity, but it is what... Uh, 
it is one of the things that is unique about Christianity. So as Christians, we say there is only one God who created everything. He alone is perfect. There is only one. We are monotheistic religion. There is no other God. And yet, within the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to believe in a Trinitarian God. Now, you might be thinking, how can there be one God and three persons, right? It doesn't make sense. And to a certain extent, yeah, we don't know. I can't give you a description how this works out because we are finite human beings talking about an infinite, transcendent God. The fact is we can't comprehend him. But we know it's true because this is how he has revealed himself. It's important, though. It's the, the theology important because this is who God is. At its core, he is one God, and there are three persons within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's important to hold on to uh, as we dig into the rest of the text. It's the foundation, really, for this text. But back to our question, right? How do you know if you are in the true church and not the apostate church? Well, one of the things I love about Revelation is that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us how, how everything is going to end. But he reveals it to us in a way that's not just dryly communicating information. He does it in this beautifully and skillful and artistic way. And if you uh, jump back to chapter 17, I, I can't go into all the details, but one thing I encourage you this week is on your own, reread chapter 17 and compare it to the image that you will be seeing of the bride in chapter 19 here. And what you see is incredibly compared and contrasted views that you're supposed to look back and forth and go, oh, wait, where have I heard something like this? Oh, it's like this, except different. And one of the ways is when the Babylon, when she is described, she's described as gaudily dressed in scarlet and purple and gold, while the bride of Christ, in contrast, is dressed simply in pure white, rich linen. So how do you tell if you're a part of the Babylonian church or the true church? How you're dressed? Now, thankfully, we're not talking about your fashion sense. Many of us would be in trouble at that point, I'm sure. Uh, what is dressing talking about in this verse? Well, if you keep reading down and you get to uh, verse 8, it says this, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, how do you know if you are truly a follower of Jesus? Well, you look at your life and it has been transformed in such a way that you will be different. You will live in a way that is different. In fact, this is something that is scattered all all throughout the New Testament. Right, the Bible, the New Testament especially, is constantly telling Christians, examine yourself. Examine yourself. And Jesus even says, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. The way you live, the way you talk, the way you speak, the things that you desire. All of this has been transformed in a way that makes you set apart. And so that is represented by this pure 
rich white linen as compared to his gaudy scarlet and gold. Well, one might be appealing to the kingdoms of the world, as you see in chapter 17, they flock to this Babylon. The other is appealing to Jesus. It's what his bride is dressed as. But what does that mean? Because as Christians, we know this, right? You are not saved by good works. And yet the New Testament is always telling you, examine yourself. Are you doing good works? Why would it ask you that question if you know that you cannot possibly be saved by any amount of good works? That there's nothing a human being can do on our own that makes up for all the sin that we and the evil we have committed. Why does it keep telling us to examine ourselves? And this is important. While you are not saved by good works, you are saved to good works. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, God is not powerless. He will transform you. Your desires will be transformed. Your words will be transformed. Your actions will be transformed. And so when you look at your life, if you look at who you were before you met Jesus and who you are now, what the scripture is telling you is, is saying, look, are you a different person? Do you love more? Are you kinder? Are you more holy? Are you less sinful? And yeah, there will never be a day where you go until Jesus returns where you have not sinned, right? Let's be honest with ourselves here. There will never be that day. But are you a different person? Are you being changed and transformed each moment more and more into the image of Jesus? And I ask you that because if the answer is no, guess what? You don't have to stay that way. You can actually receive the Holy Spirit. You can actually be transformed. You don't have to live constantly making the same mistakes again and again and again and never feeling powerful enough to change yourself. Look around the world right now. That's one of the most desired things in the world. You people who feel so upset with themselves because they can never be who they want to be. If, if, if people are truly honest and laid out before you, they don't want to be the person that they are, but they feel powerless to change themselves. So instead, they argue that who they are is good enough, right? Who they are is good enough. And in kindness, the Christian message is who you are without Jesus is not good enough. That sounds cruel, but leaving someone with a delusion is more cruel. And so, so what does that mean? How do we dress ourselves in righteousness, as it says here? Because it, it's... It even says these words, right? It was granted her to clothe herself. It's an interesting thing, right? Because we're powerless to change ourselves. That's where we got to remember that not only are we saved by the power of God alone, but we are transformed by God alone. Because let's look at that wording one more time a little closer. It was granted her to clothe herself. In other words, this, this linen, this wedding dress that the bride is wearing, which is the church and the righteous deeds of the saints, yes, she clothes herself, but who was given these deeds in the first place? Elsewhere in the scripture, it puts it this way. 
that God prepared before the foundation of the world the good works that you were saved to do. In other words, all that we do as followers of Jesus, all that we think and all that we are, we only do good because of God himself. Right? And so, are you responsible for doing good deeds? Yes. Can you do good deeds apart from God? No. How does that work and how does that relate? I mean, that you have that would take uh, volumes of books to go through the details. But the point is, that's how it works. And why does it work that way? Well, well, I just want to pause right here and talk. What does it actually mean to even be a Christian, to be saved by Jesus? And we jump down here to the end of the text, and that's when when John is worshiping the angel and he stops him, he says something about who Christians are. He says, don't worship me. In, in fact, you and, and all, of, let's see here, verse 10, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, who are your brothers, all Christians, right? All ch- Christians are children of God. You and your brothers. And what is a Christian? What is a brother? those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And what what is the testimony of Jesus? Well, it answers that too. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I want to break this down. What is happening here is incredibly profound and beautiful. Remember earlier when I was talking about the Trinity and it seemed unrelated? I want you to look very closely at what you're being told to worship the Father, because you are Christian, which means you hold to the testimony of Jesus. And what's the testimony of Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be a Christian means that you are saved because the Father sent the Son to die for your sins. And that that forgiveness is worked on us through the Spirit. So the Spirit changes us to be made in the likeness of Jesus to give glory to the Father. Elsewhere, too, Jesus, when he's talking about how to pray, what we know about praying is that we pray in the name of Jesus to the Father by the power of the Spirit. What I'm saying is this, to be a Christian down at the core of our identity means to be brought in to relationship with the Trinitarian God. In other words, the full Godhead, all three persons are working together for our salvation and our sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word to say, be more like Jesus every day, right? The fullness of God is working that in us. Now, how does that work out together? Like I said, I don't want to go through the full details because that takes volumes, but I do just want to say this. One of the things I struggle with is this idea, okay, if we only change by God, how how are we changed then? How can we enter into that? And there is this, you are personally responsible for your good deeds, and you can only be changed by God. You hold those two things in tension. And, And so what's the only appropriate response? Well, the first response should be prayer, right? Like, prayer reveals what you truly believe about who truly saves you and changes you. Because if you 
if you truly believe only God can change us, well, then the first response you have to do to wanting to be changed is live a life of constant prayer, asking God to work in you and to change you, to change your desires and your actions and your words. But more than that, we do see this, this personal responsibility component too. Uh, and, and what I find is a lot of times what we do is we end up praying when we're really struggling, for instance, with the sin that we just can't get over with this character trait, with this habit that we want to get over. We keep praying and we keep struggling. Um, one insight that I found helpful actually comes from an old Puritan author, John Owens, on a book. It's called Mortification of Sin, which is reads about as interesting as the title does, uh, a bit dry. But... The insight, the insight is actually pretty important. He says, one of the reasons that God doesn't take away the temptation to sin when we ask him to is because what we are really praying in that moment is that, God, can you help me overcome the sin without having to rely on you to overcome the sin? Right? Because that's really what we're asking, right? We want to stop struggling with sin because we don't have to every moment be relying upon God. To overcome sin in that moment. And if you look at the fall, what's the problem with the fall? We became separated from God. This is the problem with humanity from the fall till now is that we become separated from God and all the evil and disease and death are the consequence of that. And so if we pray, help me overcome sin while still being separated from you, it doesn't actually make sense. But God in his kindness sometimes leaves us to continue to struggle with temptation so that we learn to rely on him. Because once again, what is to be a Christian? It means to be invited into a relationship with the Trinity, where each moment we are being empowered by the Spirit to be made into the image of the Son for the glory of the Father. And so what this verse is telling us is that we are to dress ourselves in the righteousness given to us by God. There is a relationship there. He invites us in to work with him together. The surprising thing, and the thing that many of us don't like about this, is this, this next part too. He dress yourself and the righteousness given to us by God. And right now we have a Christianity that is between me and God and this growing relationship between me personally and God. But here's the thing I always say about Christianity. Christianity is not a private religion. Right? I want that to sink in for a second. Christianity is not a private religion. So when God through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, restores us into a relationship with the Trinitarian God. We're not just brought into that union with God and us individually. We're also brought in with all others who are brought into that union. In other words, we can't say, I am perfectly okay being a brother of Jesus and a son of God, but I don't want to be this person's brother. <laughs> They're obnoxious and annoying, right? I want nothing to do with this person. I don't care that they're a Christian. It's just me and God. Let's leave the church out of it. Guess what? You don't get to do that. 
you don't get to accept Jesus as a brother and not accept all the other Christians as brothers as well. Christianity is not a private religion. A lot of times there's this idea of, I will take Jesus, but I don't really like the church going on now. That, like, if you read the text of what Jesus is saying, that's ridiculous. That's not a thing, right? I'm not saying membership at a particular church is what gets you saved. What I'm saying is there is no salvation that saves you away from other people who are also saved. That's not a real thing. That's a figment of your imagination. And how that practically works out I mean, we saw a small taste of that today already. Working together, we move towards Christ by the power of Spirit together as one family. Look at all the images the Bible uses to describe the church as uh, a family, right? As a body, a singular body where Jesus is the head and until he returns, we are his body doing his good works on earth together. Right? Not a hand doing its own thing and a foot doing its own thing. That's called a seizure, right? Nothing's getting accomplished. Uh, another image is a temple, right? So in the Old Testament, the temple is where God was, his presence. In the New Testament, his church is the new temple, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. I mean, you just take that as individually the Holy Spirit is with me. All right. The Holy Spirit is with the church, right? Us together. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you don't have the Holy Spirit when you don't have other people physically with you. I just mean that the Holy Spirit is the gift to the whole church together. And, and it's this beautiful image because where before you had to come to God at a specific location, now the church goes out and brings God's presence to the lost world around us. And in this image, we have the image of a wedding where Jesus, the great bridegroom, goes off in preparation of the wedding and he prepares a place where we will get to dwell with him forever. And in the coming chapters, we see this climactic scene where heaven finally touches earth and we have the physical and the spiritual married together and for all of eternity we get to dwell with God. And in the meantime, us as his bride are also preparing for the wedding. We are getting dressed in the righteous deeds of the saints, preparing for his coming so that when we are married, we're not wearing sweatpants or jeans up there, right? We're dressed in beautiful white linen of righteous deeds. And we're doing this together. Right? And this brings us all the way back to what we were talking about beginning. This is our hope for the future. If you have dressed yourself in righteousness, the righteousness given to you by God, then with all of God's people, you will have hope for the future. Because what God is promising here is that no matter the circumstances around you, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how much people hate you for pointing to Jesus, or no matter how much uh, pandemic 
our warfare, our evil and disaster and sorrow surround you in a moment. They are temporary. And there will be a moment that will make all those other moments seem tiny and insignificant in comparison. Not because they're light, not because they're small, not because your suffering is somehow uh, a joke, but because the glory that is to come is so much greater. The joy that is to come is not just greater, but it is eternal. It never fades. It never lessens. You don't get bored. You don't get sorrowful anymore. Because God has redeemed everything. The battle is over. Evil is defeated. The consequences of sin have been made right. And so the reason I'm preaching this text, the reason the New Testament urges you again and again, examine yourself, is because we want you there. We don't, the text, the Bible, the scripture, the spirit who wrote the scripture doesn't want you to miss out. And so what I, as we close up here, what I want to urge you to do this week is to spend some time and truly examine yourself. Ask God in prayer, hey, the moment I thought I became a Christian, have you changed me and how? And if the answer to that is, I'm the same exact person, if not worse off than before, genuinely ask the question, God, have I put my faith in you actually? If not, help me to do that right here in this moment. And if that happens to you, I want to hear about it. I want to hear about how you entered the but if you are a Christian, and if in examining you see the ways God has changed you, he's made you more loving and more kind and more gentle, he's made you more righteous and more pure, spend some time and give thanks and rejoice, right? It's, yes, it is difficult surrounding, especially this year, right? It, it's brought up some apparent things that we have no control over our own health, how long we'll live, even our own freedom is kind of subject to forces around us. If that can be difficult, but one thing we can do is we can give rejoice in any circumstance because we know that this is temporary. And the change that God has brought in us is evidence that we will be a part of this wedding ceremony. That we will rejoice over this incredible feast together. With that, I want to close us in prayer and then invite the worship team back up to close us in worship with your song. Father, thank you so much for the hope that you give us in your scripture. I pray that you'd help us examine ourselves this week, that we would look at our lives and, and you would show us how you have changed us and that would lead us to rejoice in the hope that is to come. I pray this all in Jesus' name.